0: Father, and to place our hearts in the right frame of mind. Thank you for this time, Father, of song and and worship and praise. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for all he accomplished for us, for all he did for us. Thank you for a a church that is interested in, in thinking more about you. So I pray for our time together for the next little while as we open the truth of the Word of God. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us in a mighty and powerful way. I pray that your name would be honored and glorified by the things that we say. I pray you would keep us free from distraction. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and our minds, we'd be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. This is his precious and powerful name that we pray. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to jump right in this morning. This is week 4 of the sermon series we're calling Authentic Faith. And this Authentic Faith sermon series is an exposition of 1 John. It's a verse-by-verse study into exactly who John calls us to be. And in the process of this study, we need to examine our hearts, we need to examine our minds, we need to examine our faith on a deeper level. It's very easy sometimes with life to get involved in all the various things that we have to do and spend our time in important things, certainly, But I think sometimes we need to be reminded that we need to take a step back to re-examine our faith. And when we re-examine our faith, based on the truth and the clarity of the Word of God, it should force us to change our hearts. It should force us to recognize places in our lives that we need to change and we need to mold and we need to shape more into the image of Christ. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us very clearly that we should bear fruit. That means, very simply, that our lives should indicate that we're different. Our lives should indicate that we're believers. Our lives should indicate that we're followers of Jesus Christ, and we want to do everything we can to live for Him. And so we'll turn our attention this morning to the book of 1 John. And my my prayer throughout this sermon series has been, and will continue to be, that as you're challenged by the truth of the Word of God, you'll re-examine your walk i remind you that John is writing to a group of people that had left the church. They had rebelled against the clear teachings of the church. They had gone against what the Bible had commanded them to do. And then they'd come back and try to teach falsehoods to all the believers. And so John is encouraging the believers in the church. John is teaching truth. And in the process of teaching truth, he's counteracting the false teachers that had left the church. But John's going to do something different in our study this morning. Up to this point, John has given us very clear indications of what our faith ought to look like and how we ought to live our lives, and he's going to go back to that in just a few minutes. The verses 12, 13, and 14 give a very interesting uh, kind of parenthetical look at the Christian faith. And so John kind of takes a step back, and if you wanted to kind of think about putting parentheses around verses 12, 13, and 14, it's a little bit of a different position than John has taken up to this point. So we're going to examine this text together, beginning in verse 12, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. John says this, I'm writing to you, little children, and we see this idea again of John's desire to love us, right? We see this term of endearment. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. See, after John gives us all these challenges over the last several weeks, after John reminds us of how we should live our lives, John is going to deviate this morning for just a few minutes. And he's going to remind us of of some simple truths. And so the the first thing I want to point out this morning is a series of promises of our faith. John's going to remind us in verses 12, 13, and 14 of the promises of our faith. That's very interesting. If you're looking in your Bible, you may notice that verses 12, 13, and 14 are literally structured different on the text, on the page. They may be indented a little bit. It's written in more poetic form. John wants to set this aside. John wants you to realize that he's taking a step back from what he's been teaching. And he wants to shed kind of a different light on our walk. But John's going to give us some clear things here. John's going to give us some clear indication as we've been thinking through the challenge. And we've been thinking through our faith. And we've been thinking through examining who we are. John's going to move from examination really to a point of encouragement. Because John's going to say to you, we know we need to live our lives this way. We know we need to be challenged with these truths. We know we need to do certain things in our walk. But I want to encourage you to live your life in a certain way by making these promises to you. And so John has kind of given us these three things. John says there there are really three promises. If we were to take verses 12, 13, and 14 and kind of boil them down and summarize them, we could say we've been promised these three things. John says because of Christ in your life, you have forgiveness of your sins. You have known the Father, and you've known Him from the beginning. And thirdly, you are strong, you have overcome the world, because the Word of God abides in you. John says, even in your struggle, even in your walk, even in your examination, you need to remember these promises, because these are essential to your faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's written a very large commentary on 1 John that I'm reading through in this study, is a fascinating study on 1 John. But he says that these in verses 12, 13, and 14, are the bare essentials of the Christian faith. I like that. And he uses a little phrase in his book. He says, these are the irreducible minimum. In other words, if we wanted to reduce the Christian faith to this, we could say it's about forgiveness of sin. It's about knowing the Father and knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. It's about overcoming evil through the power of the Word of God in our lives. But here's the problem some people run into as they begin to study the Word of God. They begin to look at the teachings of John, or maybe they look at the teachings of Paul, or maybe they look at the teachings of another New Testament writer or an Old Testament writer for that fact. And they look at the teachings and they they begin to say to themselves, I'm not sure that's written to me. (laughs) That has to be written to the super-Christian. And the idea that that, that I've overcome evil and I'm abiding in the word. And those those are things that I aspire to. Those are things that I would like to happen in my life. Those are the things I know that are important. But when the rubber meets the road, that's not necessarily who I am. I'm not spending the time in in the word that I should. I'm not spending time in prayer like I should. I'm, I'm not abiding in the things of Christ as I should. But I want you to notice what John does here. John doesn't say to the super-Christian, here's how you should live your life. Instead, he divides it up so it ranges over a large category of people. Little children he speaks to. Fathers he's speaking to. Young men he's speaking to. Here's what John's saying. It doesn't really matter who you are. It doesn't really matter your age. It doesn't matter where you are in life, whether you're a little child, whether you're a father or a young man. And we would say that, that ladies fit into this. Well, father or mothers, young men or young women... Children, boys, or girls, it doesn't really matter where you are. It doesn't matter where your walk has taken you. As a believer, these things are foundational to you. Now, if these are foundational truths and these are promises that John spends three verses talking about, we need to examine them just for a second because we need to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged in our walk. We need to be encouraged in its truth. We need to be encouraged in what the Bible clearly shows us. And John says to us, if you're a believer, if you're walking as Christ called you to walk, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't want to just glaze over that because I think a lot of people miss this. And and I I bring this up and I pause here just for a minute because it's amazing to me the number of conversations I have with people and the conversation goes something like this. Adam, I'm just not sure I'm good enough for the Lord. I'm just not sure all this stuff that I've done back here is really forgiven. I'm, I'm just not sure all the mistakes that I made. I had somebody in my office last week and the words came out of this person's mouth just as John says here. He says, this person said, I'm not sure I'm good enough for God. Now I want to I want to clue you in on a truth. If as a believer you think you're not good enough for God, you're exactly right. But see, that's the beauty of the Christian faith. John says it's not about what you do. It's not about who you are. It's not about what you've accomplished. Your sins are forgiven because of what Christ did for you. You understand that? Not because of your self-worth. So John gives it to us very clearly in verse 12. Listen to what he says. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. Why? For his name's sake. You see that? John John doesn't say your sins are forgiven because you're just so good. (laughs) Your sins are forgiven because you've given so much money to the church. Your sins are forgiven because you show up every Sunday morning faithfully. And all those things are wonderful and God honors those things and those are part of our Christian wall. But that's not the truth in this text. John says your sins are forgiven because of Christ and because of all that Christ has done in your heart and in your life. And so the truth is, regardless of how you feel, the truth is, regardless of what you've done, the truth is, regardless of what you may think, The Scripture is clear that no matter the sins you have committed because of Christ, they can be forgiven. And I think we miss that sometimes. I think think we say that with our mouths, but we don't understand that with our hearts. And we don't live our lives as if we truly are forgiven. And so we see texts of Scripture all through the Bible, like Psalm 32, verse 5. that says this, I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity, and I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you, watch this, forgave the iniquity of my sin. See what the Bible says there? It's clear. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. Watch this. And our God will freely pardon. Acts chapter 10, verse 43, speaking of Christ. All the prophets testify about him. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. See, the Bible is clear that if we ask for forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ, we will receive it. You say, okay. All right, so I I got that then. Okay, I, I get that intellectually at least. I get that that's the teaching of Scripture. Over and over and over we see that our sins will be forgiven. If we ask, now they're not automatically forgiven. Christ died on the cross for our sins if we accept that forgiveness but here 's the question I have adam i 'm still struggling with this guilt, I get intellectually that they 've been forgiven, but i 'm still struggling i 'm just going to be very honest I still worry, I worry about what i 've done and I worry about all the mistakes that i 've made and I, I just have this kind of nagging feeling of guilt and I just I love what what John does here because it 's almost as if you know go figure the Holy Spirit kind of knew what we were going to think. <laughs> And so he gives this very interesting progression here in verse 13. As we think to ourselves, I understand that my sins have been forgiven, but I just can't, I can't quite put my arms around that. I can't quite overcome the, the guilt that I feel. Look at what he says in verse 13. I'm writing you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. And I'm writing to you young men because you have what? Overcome the evil one. See that? John says, I know, I know it's going to be hard, Right? I know it's going to be difficult. I know that the devil's going to nag at you and remind you and try to keep you focused on the past. But you need to understand one of the promises of Christ. Because you have known the Lord, because you have known him from the beginning, you will overcome the evil one. See that? John says, through the power of Christ, working in your heart and working in your life, the truth is you can overcome And I wonder how many people are just stuck in that rut of just doubting and feeling guilty and just wondering if the Lord can use them. John says emphatically, yes, the Lord can use you. As a believer, your sins have been forgiven. As a believer, you can overcome the guilt. And you say, that's great, so my sins have been forgiven, I can't overcome the guilt, but how can I actually do that, Right? That sounds good, but what I really need to be doing to overcome the guilt? Again, here's this incredible progression. Look at verse 14. I write to you fathers because you have known him who he is from the beginning. I write to you young men, watch this because you are strong. Now watch. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You see that? John says you overcome the evil one by allowing the word of God to abide in your heart. You recognize that your sins are forgiven. You recognize that you can overcome the feeling of inadequacy and the feeling of guilt, and you can overcome by allowing the Word of God to abide in your hearts. I've had the opportunity, really the privilege the last several weeks, to be down with our students on Wednesday nights and teaching them and just spending some time in small groups with them. And I want to let you guys know, if you don't already, we've got an incredible group of students, we've got an incredible group of leaders and God's doing something in the hearts of these students and he's going to do something in the hearts of these students for many years to come. There's some people, some, some of these young students that have stepped up as leaders and are interested in doing the will of God. So I want to implore you as the body of Christ to continue to pray for these students. To continue to pray for the direction of this youth ministry. But I had the opportunity to teach them Wednesday night and I made a comment to them that I'm going to make to you because I believe it's true. The older I get and the more wise I get, whatever that means, right? Right? I believe with all my heart more and more and more that the Word of God literally acts as an antidote in our lives. Now, I don't mean that in some strange spiritual sense that nobody really... I mean, I'm I'm talking realistically, very real in our lives, that the Word of God will act as an antidote. Now, here's what an antidote is. If you ingest poison or you get bitten by a snake or whatever that looks like and there's poison in your body, you need an antidote to counteract that poison, right? If you don't get that antidote, you're probably going to die from that poison if the poison's strong enough. I believe as I study and as I read the Word of God and as I understand more clearly what God does, I believe that there's power in the gospel to inoculate us from the things of the world. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean by that if you'll spend time reading the Word of God, I think God will keep you free from sin. I think He'll direct your course. You say, well, that's an interesting position to take, but is there scriptural precedent for that? Of course. One of the clearest that you'll be familiar with is Psalm 119.11. We all know how it begins. I've hidden your word in my heart, right? We say that. We know that. We understand that. Do you remember what the second part of that is? That we might not what? Sin. God says, "If, if you'll just abide in my word... If you'll just spend time in the Word of God, it will inoculate you. It will act as an antidote. If you'll do those things, you won't sin. Now, I'm going to say something. I'm still fleshing out of my own brain, so I, I'm, not, I'm not claiming this truth necessarily, but I, I believe I could back this up scripturally. I'm not even convinced that you have to understand everything that you read for the Word of God to inoculate you from the things of the world. I think you just need to read it. I think you need to spend time in the Word of God reading it because we fall into this trap and we fall into this lie and we fall into this excuse. Adam, I can't read the Word of God because I don't understand it. I can't spend hours studying or I can't spend hours a week reading because I just can't get past the first few verses. You know what? Plow on through and read it anyway. Trust the Lord to work in your heart. Now, when I say read the Bible, I don't mean a verse or two a day. I'm talking about two or three chapters a day. Why don't you commit yourself? Some of you, for the first time in your life, for the next 30 days, to read the Word of God, two or three chapters every day, just commit to doing it. Just spend time in the Word of God and see if He doesn't begin to work in your heart. See if He doesn't begin to work in your minds and in your life. And we begin to see this passage of Scripture bearing truth in our lives that the Word of God, when it abides in us, we overcome evil. When we recognize who Christ is, we overcome evil and we understand that our sins are forgiven. Now look at what it does in verse 15 as we move on through this passage of Scripture. John has reminded us, he's encouraged us of the promises of faith, and now he's going to go back to where he was. Remember, John spent a lot of time reminding us of how we should live. John spent a lot of time explaining to us what the Christian walk and the Christian faith ought to look like. He's taken this, this... little section of verses 12, 13, and 14 and reminded us of the promises of the faith. But now he's going to get right back into verse 15 encouraging us to live for Christ. Verse 15 is very clear. Do not love the things of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's the second truth we pull out of this text of scriptures. we try to understand what John is clearly saying to us. John is, number two, going to caution us, don't love the world. (laughs) Easy to say, difficult to do. Now John, up to this point, has already given us a lot of tests. He's given us a lot of indications of how we should live. And he's he's shown us tests of fellowship and walking in the darkness. He's talked about recognizing our sinfulness. Last week we talked about the importance of obedience and loving other people. And he's used a lot of if-then statements as we challenge our faith. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not with us. On and on, the list is gone, but would go. But John does something different here in verse 15. For the first time, John gives us what's, what's very clearly a command when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. It's not a suggestion. It's not on his wish list. It's not something he hopes we would consider. There's a clear indication in verse 15 that he's commanding us that we shouldn't love the world. You say, great, that, 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 that teaching is clear. But Let's define something before we move forward. What does world mean? John says don't love the world, what are we talking about? Is he talking about the trees and the grass and the mountains and the rivers, the, the, the physical world? No. Is he talking about the people of the world? Am, am, am I not supposed to love the people of the world? No, because he's already told us we need to live in fellowship with our brothers. We need to love other people as we love ourselves. So he's not talking about the physical world, he's not talking about the people of the world. What's he talking about? Well, here's, here's a pretty simple definition of what John means by the word world anyone or anything that does not seek the will of God. That's what he's talking about. If there's a person or a thing out there that is contrary to the teachings of the Word of God, we would consider that the world. And John would say, you don't need to love those things. You don't need to love the things that are anti-Christ. And so we we look at this passage of Scripture and we say, okay, John commands us to not love the world. And there's some extremes we can go to that believers over the centuries have gone to. One of the extremes is to say this. Well, if I'm not supposed to love the world, that means I must seclude myself from the world, right? And I need to kind of lock myself in a closet. I need to kind of lock myself in a room. And I need to isolate myself totally from the things of the world. Those of you that went with us to Guatemala will remember this. And those of you that are going here in another week, you'll see this when we get to this point. But on our way back to the airport, we go through a city called Antigua. Antigua is a very, very old city in Central America. Dates back to the 1500s. The oldest cathedral in Central America is in the city of Antigua. It's a beautiful old city. Within that city is a monastery, and we had a few minutes that afternoon, and so we got to tour around and just walk through and see that monastery. Dates back to the 1500s, and the, the nuns that lived there would literally come and spend their life in that monastery. And we had the opportunity to walk around, and we walked to this one section. It's very interesting. There's this kind of big circular room. Of course, there's no roof anymore. It's rotted away, so there's just stone and walls. Big circular room, and off that room are small little rooms. So you kind of go to the main room, and then you walk off the main room and down a little bitty hallway, and there's a small room, probably half the size of this, maybe this area right here, and there's one little window, and there's, there's a spot where they could sit. And the nuns, we were told, would go into these rooms, would close the door, and they would literally bring them food and water, sometimes for weeks at a time, and they would stay in that room and spend time in prayer. Now, while we admire their sense of dedication to the Lord, we admire their sense of prayer, I I would have to challenge the way they're living their lives because Christ doesn't call us to seclude ourselves from the world. Christ commands us to go into the world, right? To share with those that are lost. To walk into darkness with the truth of the life. So so we kind of have this... This extreme of separating ourselves from the world. And I don't think the Bible teaches that. And then there are people on the other end of the spectrum. They say something like this. I'm just going to totally embrace the world. I'm going to buy into everything in the world. And I'm going to seek these pleasures. I'm going to live life to the fullest. And that's not the right answer either. So, so for, the, for the believer, we kind of come to this dilemma. We kind of come to the, the, this, this fork in the road where we've got to make this decision. And the, the trick for the believer is to be in the world, right, but not of the world. To live in the world but not to be swayed by the world. You say, well, that's a, that's a, that's a gray area, Adam. It's kind of fine line. H- how do we do that? What are some specific things we need to avoid? What are some, some specific dangers we need to be aware of? We'll, we'll Look at verse 16, verse 16, because John gives us very clearly the specific things we need to be aware of. John says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, he gives us three very clear things. The desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions. He says those things are not from the Father, but they are from the world. Now the NIV uses the word desire. There are other translations, I think the King James may be one of them, that uses the word lust. Now I'm going to use the word lust here for one very simple reason. When we hear the word lust, we pay attention, don't we? When we hear the word desire, yeah, desires are the things of life. But when I say the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes, the pride in possession, we have a clearer picture of exactly what John's saying here. Now, here's the point. John's not saying to us that there's anything wrong with possessions. John's not saying to us there's anything wrong with taking care of our flesh and enjoying life. That's not what John's saying. He puts these qualifiers in front of them instead. He says the problem is having pride in your possessions. The problem is having lust in your eyes. The problem is having lust of the flesh And so the problem we have is not that God has given us things that we shouldn't do. The problem is we abuse those God-given things that he's provided in our lives for his honor and for his glory. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, says it like this. Lust means that instead of controlling our desires and using them as we ought to, we are controlled by them. They master us and they control us. There are certain desires in us that are perfectly legitimate. They have been given by God. But if we are governed and controlled by them and our whole outlook upon life is circumscribed by these things, then we are guilty of lust. It's amazing to me because we we read in the modern day media and in the world and sometimes we may even hear people say something like this. They'll say this, The Bible is really not relevant today. The Bible's really not relevant today. It's a a good history book, a lot of interesting history. It's a great piece of literature. There's some moral principles maybe you can gain from the Bible, but let's be honest, the Bible's not relevant today. It's fascinating to me because if we were to name the top two or three problems that we deal with in our world right now, they're right there on that screen, aren't they? (laughs) See, what, what John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has done has nailed even today the things that we still struggle with. So not only is the Bible relevant and current, but it speaks to the truth of the matter even now in your heart. It speaks to the truth of the matter even now in my heart. So I did a little research this week. Research is interesting. It, it can't tell you everything, but it sometimes gives you a picture. As we think about the lust of the flesh and, and, and the lust of the vi- eyes, and I read about the problem we have still in our world with teenage pregnancy. I read, I read about the problems that we still have with sexual abuse. You guys are familiar that that college students a, a couple of weeks ago had that 27-hour stand on the square. I hope some of you were able to be a part of that. But they did that because it represents 27 million people that live in our world today that are still in slavery. Now, it's hard for us to understand that there are 27 million people still in the world that are in slavery. But the vast majority of those slaves are in the human sex trafficking market. That's, that's what they're slaves to. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. Children are born more and more out of wedlock. According to the Centers for Disease Control, over 40% of babies born are born to unwed mothers. So as we we think about the world that we live in, we we understand that there are there are issues that we deal with, but the thing John wants us to understand is that there's hope in Christ. We struggle, we all struggle with these things. It's amazing. I I thought through these and I thought through through these statistics and the struggles of our world, and I thought, you know what? These are just statistics we can measure. Nobody's measuring what's in your mind. Nobody's measuring what's in your heart. And I just wonder if we could add those statistics to these numbers if we would understand that these problems are an absolute epidemic. And these things keep us from the glory we could receive in Christ. And these things keep us from living a life that brings Him honor and a life that brings Him glory. See, John says it's not just about the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes is important to those things. It's also about the pride in possessions. Again, John doesn't say there's anything wrong with possessions. God gives us things and he blesses us and he wants us to have nice things. The problem is when we take pride in those possessions. I'm becoming more and more convinced that, it, that especially in America, the, the material things of life are our greatest blessing and our greatest curse. Because we've, we've been given incredible things, but here's the problem in America. We've been, so many, we've been given so many nice things that we forget that we have to rely on Christ in all things. And I challenge myself, I, I challenge you with this thought. Is your faith found in your paycheck every week, or is it really found in the things of Christ? Because it's easy to trust in the Lord as long as that money's rolling in, <laughs> as long as there's food on the table. As long as that house payment is made, as long as you got a nice vehicle to drive around and get you from point A to point B, everything's good. We trust it in the Lord. But when that money runs out, and that paycheck quits coming, and you're forced, maybe for the first time ever in your life, to truly rely on Christ, I just wonder where our faith is. Because John says we, we need to be very careful here because we, we, we find this tendency in our world to want bigger and better and more expensive And again, John doesn't say there's anything wrong with possessions, but John says when you begin to put those things ahead of Christ, you're taking pride in those things. I started looking up, it's it's interesting, again, I've got a degree in history, so so historical facts are important to me. And I I try to usually, and I'm not always able to do this, but I like to gauge things based on a bigger picture than just the last three months. We fall into this trap in America of being immediate in everything. And so we're just looking at this small little picture of what's going on now. And let's take a step back. What's the last decade look like? What's the last century look like? What's the last 500 years look like? And it's amazing to me if you start looking at the excess in our world. Houses now since the 1940s are twice as big as they were. Can, can you believe that a family of four used to go live in a 1,000-foot square house? Wow. I mean, how could they survive, right? Trust me now, I'm, my wife and I, are, we're at the, we have this conversation regularly, so I'm not, I'm not preaching at you. I'm right here with you. I mean, they all used to share the same bedroom, right? We, we all understand that historically. So for thousands of years, people were able to survive living in the same bedroom, and now all of a sudden, the last 50 years, wow, we're, we're not going to be able to survive that. <laughs> we all got to have our own bath. Again, I'm right here with you. We all got to have our own bathroom, got our own bedroom. I mean, those things are nice, and I'm, again, I'm not preaching against those things. But I think sometimes we put those things ahead of Christ. And we work a lot harder to get a bigger house than we work to deepen our faith in the Lord, don't we? We work a lot harder to get a nicer vehicle than to spend time with Christ and to spend time leading our family. And John says, just beware here. Just be careful because there's danger. John says, I want you to live your life with authentic faith that when you begin to love the things of the world, you're walking down the wrong path. You say, well, that's interesting, but why, why is that such a big deal? Why can't I have all this nice stuff and love all this nice? Why can't I accumulate all this stuff on this earth? What's the problem? Well, look at verse 17. Again, John walks with this progression almost as, as if the Holy Spirit knows what we're going to say. Look at what he says in verse 17. The world is passing away. That's the problem. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's the third point. John says the third thing you need to understand, the reason we don't need to bind to the possessions of life is because, number three, this world is not our home. Man, the sooner we recognize that, the better off we are all going to be because life is temporary and you're not taking anything with you. My grandmother died eight or ten years ago. She was, she was 96 when she passed away. And growing up, she lived in Villa Rica, Georgia, the big city of Villa Rica. Bigger now than it used to be. When I used to go over there, it was nothing. They had about 40 acres and a really big, to me, it was a mansion. You know, this a huge house. I look back at it now, why nearly as big as I see it now from an adult perspective. But I have very fond memories of that house. We, we would, we'd spend time over there as a family, and summers over there, I'd spend a week at a time over there, me, mom, and granddaddy. Granddaddy had this huge fireplace and he actually built it from the rocks that he pulled from the river. Some of your granddaddies did the same thing. And he built this enormous fireplace. And I can remember on cold nights in the winter, we'd, we'd sit around that fire. My granddaddy did something I've never seen anybody else do. He burned coal in his fireplace. Now, you talk about a hot fire. Coal burns hot. And so we'd go outside and play in the woods and get free. And we'd come in and Meemaw would have some hot chocolate. And that big fire would be roaring. And I haven't... I have incredible memories of that house. It's got a very special place in my heart. But for the last 10 years of her life, my grandmother had to live with my mom. She couldn't take care of herself. and Since she was not at that house, nobody was at the house, and and they didn't get back over there very often. Even when they did, it was just a quick in and out to get something. What they didn't know is over the course of many years, there began to develop a leak underneath that house. And when it would rain, water would wash underneath the foundation and would sit under that crawl space and begin to pool up water and... It happened slowly over time, and they didn't know anything about it. And By the time somebody finally recognized what had taken place, the whole subfloor was rotted. Rotten. And so we brought these contractors in, several different people, and we showed them and asked them what, what could be done. And they said, well, you know, you can fix it, but it's going to cost you probably more than the house is worth. You have to ho- take the whole house literally off the foundation, rip all this rotten out, redo the entire foundation, Put the old house back, and then, by the way, you're going to have a brand new floor, brand new subfloor, brand new foundation, and you're going to have an 85 year old house sitting on top of it. They said, as difficult as this is, you probably need to let this house go. And so, you know what we stopped doing at that very moment? We stopped going over there and doing repairs. And we stopped going over there and painting. And we stopped worrying about that house because we knew it was temporary. We knew one day it would be gone. I think we need to do the same thing with our faith and with this world. And we need to come to the realization at some point in our lives that what we have now is not going to be here forever. And we spend so much time worrying and building and contemplating all we have now. John says, you know what? Don't worry about it because this world is not our home. Christ says, you need to build up treasure in heaven where they won't rust and moths won't eat them. And don't worry about the things of this earth because this world is not your home. Christ says, I've got a much glory, much more glorious picture for you in heaven one day. Now, I want to do something different as we finish up this one. I want you to close your eyes. I know we don't usually do this, but I, I want you to spend a couple of minutes just contemplating something because well, I don't think we do this enough. I don't, I don't think we, we do enough of, of personal evaluation and personal contemplation. And so I'm going I'm to give you two options here as you think through your own heart and your own mind where you are. Here, here's, your, here's your first possibility. For some of you, you recognize that your walk isn't where it should be. And you've been confronted by the teaching of First John and, and the, the clear picture where John just lays it out for us. And you recognize, you know what, I'm not living my life for Christ the way I need to, and I need to change some things. Maybe I need to spend more time in the Word of God. Maybe I I need to spend more time in prayer. Maybe I need to recommit myself to service or to a Sunday school class. But you recognize in your walk that you need to do something different. That's that's the first position you could be in. Here's the second position. Some of you are recognizing or coming to grips with the fact that you've never truly had an, an authentic experience with Jesus Christ. You never truly accepted Him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been playing a game. Maybe it's something you've done intentionally. Maybe it's something you've done unintentionally. But as you begin to examine Scripture, you begin to recognize, I've never done these things. I've never lived my life for Christ. I've never lived for His honor and for His glory. And so I want to challenge you right now. I want to challenge you with your faith of where you are. And I want to encourage you in this time of invitation right now to get that straight. Because John says, you know what? The, the, The days are short, our time on this earth is limited. This is not our home. And I think for some of us, it's time we get busy figuring out what God's called us to do. And I think it's time we get busy worrying about the eternal things and not worrying about the temporal things. I think it's time we set aside the petty things of life to focus on the things of Christ to do everything He's called us to do for His honor and for His glory. So Father, we thank You for this time of study. We thank you for the clarity of your word and the teaching of your word, Father. We thank you that you've spoken directly to our hearts. Father, I, I pray right now that everyone in this room would find themselves in one of these two categories, Lord. It's pretty clear-cut, Lord. Either, either we need to increase and do more for you, which we can all say on some level. Or we need to recognize we've never had that, that true salvation experience. We need to get that straight today, Father. So I pray right now through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not because my words do anything, Father, but because your Holy Spirit convicts that people would change their heart and they would change their mind for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. I'm going to give you a couple minutes if you want to come down and pray about whatever's going on in your heart. Maybe you need to repent of your sins and accept Christ as your Lord and your Savior, or maybe you want to join this church, but this is your time now.